0: No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. Eighteen plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: Ready?
2: I was born ready. Welcome to another episode of Advisory Opinions. And do we have a treat for you today? David and I are at the National Constitution Center Conference, and we are talking to Judge Naomi Rao. She has been on the D.C. Circuit since 2019. And the topics range, I'm going to tell you. Uh, What is OIRA? What is the difference between legislative power and impeachment power in Article 1? And what does she look for in a clerk? And so much more to come here on Advisory Opinions. Judge Rao, we are here live from the National Constitution Center's Conference. Um, you just got off a panel. You are hot off the stage. <laughs> uh, this is a pretty big deal. So um, very excited to talk to you. But I thought we'd start with just intro because your path to the bench to your black robe is um, relatively unusual. And some of your experience, I think, will be Very relevant to our conversation, specifically your OIRA experience. But you're going to need to explain what OIRA is, how
1: you got there, what it does. Nobody has heard of OIRA. OIRA is often said to be the most important office you've never heard of. Well, so since both of you have never really heard of it, then I can tell you why it is such an important office. Um, So OIRA is the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs, it is part of OMB, so it's an office in the White House. It was an office created by Ronald Reagan to oversee the administrative state. Basically, um, you know, the idea is the president can't really keep track of everything that's going on in all the different agencies. And so, therefore, there's this office that oversees all the significant regulatory activity around the government. You know, in my view, what the OIRA administrator does ultimately is operationalize the unitary executive. How does the president keep track of everything happening in the executive branch? OIRA is, I think, one of the primary mechanisms for overseeing that. So, like, what did did your day look like on a Tuesday? Well, you know, working in the White House is, um, there is no typical Tuesday or Wednesday or Thursday. It's, um, It's kind of a crazy job. But, I mean, the office as a whole, um, significant regulatory actions come into OIRA. We look at their cost-benefit analysis. We try to figure out whether the policy is consistent with what the president wants to do. We run an interagency process with other White House offices and other interested agencies to make sure everyone is on the same page. Um, But it's a really important. We do a lot of legal review. You know, part of my mandate as the OIRA administrator was to... um, was to deregulate, you know, to get regulatory, you know, get regular, you know, the administrative state off the back of ordinary Americans, and so that was sort of what drove a lot of our efforts on a day to day basis. Okay, so uh,
2: you know, the FAA wants to have a new regulation about air traffic controllers that they're going to come up with their little regulation that they want, and after they're done, it's going to go to you before it can actually, you know, go out for notice and comment.
1: Yes. So they will send us a draft of a rule. We have to approve it. Um, and, you know, they can't move forward until the OIRA review process is is done. And if there's a conflict between OIRA and one of the agencies, you know, there's a process for kind of working that out at the political level. You know, uh, there are times when I would have meetings with, you know, deputy secretary of an agency or the secretary of an agency or some group of cabinet secretaries to hash out policy differences.
2: Like all administrative state things pass through OIRA. And I remember- I was the regulatory czar. Yes. Or Zarina. Zarina. (laughs) Yeah. I remember uh, when she was named to this position, uh it was a big deal because you were very well known in conservative legal circles before this. And it was like, OMG, wait till you see this, Zarina. (laughs) Uh, The Catherine
3: the Great uh, (laughs) regulatory reform. That's what
2: conservatives wanted and- and very much thought of, I'm just talking about you like you're not here, mm-hmm. um, thought of you as. And so no surprise then, after how many years then you were nominated to the D.C. Circuit?
1: Um, about two and a half years.
3: So I'm always interested. So we know you didn't go from law school to OIRA. I cannot say that word. And now I'm actually embarrassed that I didn't know what it was before, yeah. like actually and re- embarrassed, and I still can't say it. So mm-hmm. double embarrassment, OIRA. So, you didn't go law law school, OIRA, the bench. Um, What was, I'm always interested in the path to the bench.
1: So, one of the things I've learned along my path to the bench, as you say, is that there is no path
3: to (laughs) the bench
1: and um, working on nominations and confirmation process. it's very hard to say that there's any way to predictably head off to the bench. So I will say that. But so, I mean, do you, where do you want me to start? Like post-law school? Yeah, let's we yeah. were just
2: talking about Steve Martin. I was born a poor black child. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is a movie quote, everyone. Okay, that's just to be true. clear, yeah. if you haven't seen that movie, you're missing out. It's yes. a fabulous movie. <laughs> so you want me to start
1: there? Um, <laughs> okay. Okay. okay, graduating law school. Okay, so I graduated law school. I um, clerked for Judge J. Harvey Wilkinson on the mm-hmm. Fourth Circuit um, when he was the chief judge. Great experience, Uh, wonderful judge, wonderful person. I then worked on the Senate Judiciary Committee. Um, I had a very lofty title of counsel for nominations and constitutional law. I will tell you, it is a great title. So I worked on nominations and not so much on constitutional law because (laughs) it turns out they're not that interested in that. In (laughs) the year I spent there, um, I was asked once whether a proposed law was constitutional.
2: Hey, once 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 is better than zero.
3: That is that is a lot better than zero. Yes.
1: Yeah, but just one. <laughs> you know, so, than zero. so, okay. What what nominations would we remember from your time? So, I guess it was. I'm just trying. To think. It was the start of the Bush administration. So, start. I Is started you got like Miguel in Estrada? August. Well, yes. So there was. Well, he was there, and then I left to go to the Supreme Court. So I was only there the first like six months. So okay. we had John Ashcroft for AG, which turned out to be very controversial. Yes, right. Ted Olson. The judges were just starting to come in, I like gotcha. Michael McConnell and <laughs> some of the other yeah. judges. So. Um, so, yeah, it was an interesting, interesting That's a time. fun time to do that John. Yeah, it was a fun time to do that. And then I clerked on the Supreme Court for Justice Thomas, which we're going to get back to later with uh, when we talk about Mazar's. I can also tell you how I got my clerkship if you yes. are interested in that story. Oh, absolutely.
3: We have a lot of law school listeners who are very interested in this kind of thing.
1: So, uh, so when I was in law school, I... Um, I, you know, I got a screening interview for Justice Thomas. I went and I met with notoriously Justice notoriously hard screening interviews. Extremely hard. They're like screening real... interview. I was called on the phone and said I would like to schedule a screening interview. I said okay, and I was like okay now. So there was no notice. They don't want you to study. No, there's no studying. Wow, and that's not how they do it as much I think now, but um, but at that time that was you know, I'm just like in my apartment in the evening and I just whatever. So I went. I met with Justice Thomas. I did not get the clerkship. Okay, so I was sad. But um, I, was one of these, I was like, you know, and then I also had a screening interview with Brett Kavanaugh mm. for Justice Kennedy. Um, and that didn't end up working out because Justice Kennedy hired his fourth law clerk. And I said, OK, you know, I'm done. I've had my shots at this. I'm not reapplying. I'm not going to be one of these people who reapplies and reapplies and reapplies. So anyway, I was sitting in the Senate cafeteria when I was working on the Senate Judiciary Committee as eating a sandwich. And um, I was only there for like 10 minutes. And Justice Thomas at that time used to eat with his clerks in the Senate cafeteria. And one of his current clerks was a friend of mine and stopped to talk to me. And then the justice says to him, well, who's that girl you were talking to? She looks familiar. Mm-hmm. And he's like, yeah, you interviewed her for a clerkship a couple <laughs> years ago. And the justice says, well, why did I not hire her? And he's like, I don't know. <laughs> She's great. So that afternoon, I got a phone call from Chambers saying, we'd like to interview you for a clerkship. I said, I haven't applied for a clerkship. I'm not sure. I'm married. I have this great job. I don't have to think about this for a second. And they were like, What is? What? So obviously, I went in eventually. I interviewed. I got the clerkship the next day. And that was how I got my clerkship. So, you know, I'm extremely grateful that that happened to me um, because, you know, Justice Thomas has been an enormous influence in my life and a great mentor and friend for the past, you know, 20 odd years.
3: Then you clerk for the Supreme Court I for did. Justice Thomas, yeah. and then you move on into the wider legal world. And what was that like?
1: You know, when I was leaving the Supreme Court, I, I guess I had to get another job. And my husband and I had always thought about living overseas. So we decided to go to London mm. for a couple of years, and we both worked at law firms. Uh, we had our first child overseas, and uh, it was a great few years Living in Europe and traveling all over Europe, um, great time to do that. And then I came back from that to work in the White House Counsel's Office for President Bush. And um, you know, while I was there, I worked on a lot of regulatory matters. Also, obviously, judicial nominations. Um, I was there at the time when both uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Alito were nominated and confirmed. And um, I also worked on the DC Circuit, Mm -hmm. you know, nomination. So that was you know kind of a precursor of that, but. So that was a great job. And from there, I went to George Mason Law School, now Scalia Law School, where I taught for 11 years. I primarily taught constitutional law almost every year. I taught legislation and statutory interpretation, comparative con law. Um, You know, those were the the main classes I taught. And then after I got tenure, I started a center called the Center for the Study of the Administrative State. And that was kind of an academic center devoted to studying the foundations of the problems with the administrative state. There wasn't really a center like that, and then I was nominated to be the head of OIRA. So, and I think that catches us up. I so think right.
3: that catches us up. So, just totally random question: mm-hmm. Does Great Britain have birthright citizenship?
1: It does not. It did before, right? So, the okay. Anglo-American tradition, like we have in America, is birthright citizenship. But Margaret Thatcher, I believe, changed it in the eighties. Interesting. And so, you there was. I guess, a modified kind of birthright citizenship. So if you were born there and then your parents and you stayed there for four or five years, you would become a citizen. But we weren't there long enough for my daughter to become. So she I,
3: couldn't weigh in on all of the prime minister upheaval, really? She, she could not okay. That. That's unfortunate. Yeah.
1: Yeah. But she is a natural born citizen
2: of the United States by virtue of her not needing to be a naturalized citizen of the United States. That is correct.
1: Yeah, yeah. So so She been, can still she run for is, president. She can. That was very important. Yeah. But I was just wondering if you could have
3: a future president and prime minister, but I don't know if they have citizenship requirements for prime minister. But I I would imagine it helps.
1: Oh, yeah. I don't know.
3: Yeah. Well, that's true. These are are new frontiers of legal scholarship. Yeah,
1: I'm sure nobody has ever figured that out. (laughs)
3: Yeah. (laughs) Okay.
1: All right. You're not going to ask me to produce any birth certificates. No, no,
3: no. No. I just, random question popped into my mind.
1: So you have written
2: an article, The Fox and the Hedgehog, about the administrative state. I mean, you're here. We have to, like, get your thoughts and all the things on the administrative state. What's so funny is that when I initially read the title and was jumping in, I got really confused because, and for those who don't know, right, it's um, the fox knows a great many things. The hedgehog knows one very big thing. Mm-hmm. That's the quote that every fox and hedgehog, my, 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 son had a onesie that was foxes and hedgehogs, like from Target. And I was like, do they even know what,
1: why?
3: Again, <laughs> never heard of this. What? I know. Never I, heard of this? I know
1: Isaiah Berlin for you. David I, French. Look, I know.
3: I, really? I, this is, I, this what? is the most embarrassing podcast.
1: I know. Okay. Well, you have to read some Isaiah Burlow. I'm so okay. sorry. Yes. He is pretty great.
2: So what was so interesting about the article to me was not what was intended to be, I'm afraid, but rather that to me, the administrative state is very much the hedgehog, right? They're the specialists, the experts that I think has been, to skip ahead to you know my own ending here the failure of the progressive movement. I don't mean progressive as we use it partisanly now. Mm -hmm. I mean, Wilsonian progressives. This idea of experts running the government will make it more efficient. It will be just a better government because experts, hedgehogs, will run the government. Whereas the fox, the generalist, who knows the big things, the great ideas, that to me is separation of powers, federalism. That's the fox. (laughs) And I'm reading the piece and I'm very confused. Because in some ways you flipped the fox and the hedgehog and I got, I, I yeah, it, I had to then
1: start over. I think administrative expertise is kind of a, you know, foxy quality, right? It's sort of like, like they know many things, you know, it's expertise, it's things on the ground, um, whereas, I mean, you know, it's never a perfect analogy, right? right. But yeah, the I'm hedgehog sure. is, to me, you know... It's about, it's about the Constitution. What's the, like, one I know the one big, big thing. The yeah. big thing is that we have separation of powers. and See? Totally flipped. <laughs> yeah. And so, to me, the administrative state, as I have already written in many places, um, is, you know, there, there are fundamental ways in which the administrative state is inconsistent with our Constitution. And... I think one way, what I think is so interesting, you mentioned the, you know, the kind of the original progressives, the historical progressives. If you go back and you read um, the progressives, what you see is that they're very candid about the fact that their project, their project of creating a new administrative state is in direct tension with the constitution. Mm-hmm. They acknowledge that the constitution is about private property and individual rights and protecting these things through, um, you know, constitutional democracy. and. They say we're going to have to get rid of all of that if we're going to have a robust and flourishing administrative state. What we see today, I think, is um, there are very few people who defend the administrative state who say it's not constitutional. They say instead, well, um, it furthers constitutional values. And so constitutional values have really replaced the constitution itself. But I do think it's interesting that no one today is really defending the actual Constitute Now, I shouldn't say no one, but there's Mm -hmm. very little defense of the administrative state, you know, having independent agencies, massive delegation um, to agencies on the grounds that it is consistent with the actual text and structure of the constitution.
3: You know, one thing that we talk about a lot on this podcast and longtime listeners know this is that we talk an enormous amount about how Congress has receded. And, um, I hate the phrase co-equal branches of government because in, as I read the Constitution, Congress appears supreme in some ways. They can fire the president. They can fire members of the Supreme Court. They control the purse strings. You can't spend a dime without con- Congress allegedly declares war, although it hasn't done that in a while. Um, it strikes me that what the administrative state has done in a way that fundamentally upsets the constitutional order is as it has expanded congress has receded and congress is often happy for it to recede because it allows them to go on cable news and and talk about you know condemn the administrative state or support it but never actually vote on the hard the truly hard things and so what i you know when i think about the administrative state and the critique of the administrative state i think of it as upsetting that fundamental order um, what are the ways in which you, if you're going to describe to a law student here, here is my bullet points on what specifically in the Constitution, beyond that sort of meta look, what specifically in the Constitution or what is specifically problematic in, from the administrative state that is that is impl- that implicates the Constitution? What are the specific things that that caused you alarm?
1: So um, I'll start where I always like to start, which is Article 1, Section 1 of the Constitution says all legislative powers here and granted, you know, are vested in Congress. So that means they are the limited and enumerated powers of our federal government have to be legislative powers have to be exercised by Congress. And I think Article 1, Section 1 includes a non-delegation principle that Congress cannot create other lawmakers outside right. of Congress? How do we figure out what that means precisely? I know is sometimes a difficult question, but the, the fundamental principle I think is, it's almost overdetermined in the constitutional te- text and structure. So that I think is the fundamental mistake, right? Is that there are these massive delegations of authority to agencies that um, essentially exercise, at least in some instances, what can only really be thought of as legislative power. And that upsets things in a number of ways. So one of them is that Congress is not doing these actions, which is, you know, they should be making the important decisions. Um, they're being made by agencies in a way that is totally different from the, the kind of what Scalia called the hurly-burly mm-hmm. of, you know, the legislative process. They're being done um, by experts, by bureaucrats in an agency who are only focused on one thing. You know, they're not Um, You know, Congress is a group of generalists. They are representative of people from all over the country. They have to negotiate to get something done. Um, They have in mind at all times all the things that are going on, all the different issues. Whereas, you know, if you're inside one agency, it's not really a fault of a person who works in an agency that they are, they've been given a mandate um, to implement some part of a statute. And they do that to the best of their ability, not even necessarily attributing anything nefarious to it. It's just that that's what they're focused on. They don't necessarily see the larger picture. They don't see the trade-offs that are being made um, across the economy or across our society. So I think that's problematic for a number of reasons.
2: I think COVID is such an interesting example where everyone was watching the administrative state, whether they knew it or not, uh, much more closely than they had been at any other point, in part because we were all sitting at home. Yeah. Um, to exactly what you said, right? I actually thought it was very unfair, some of the attacks on the CDC that they were hurting America's economy. That's not their job. Their job was only to provide, to the best of their ability and the knowledge that we had at the time, what are the best ways from a public health standpoint to prevent the spread of COVID-19? They weren't supposed to be doing the trade-offs. Frankly, in an ideal world, of course, Congress should have been doing all of that. Mm -hmm. But even aside from that, Certainly, the CDC is an administrative agency. To your point, they are not tasked with having hedgehogs, if you will, um, on the economic trade-offs or on supply chain. The CDC doesn't do supply chain, right. and yet they were getting blamed, you know, for their recommendations. Look, everything's a trade-off. You were supposed to take the CDC's public health advice and
1: then weigh that against other. Um, Well, that's why political oversight is so important, right? Mm -hmm. Um, The whole process of having presidential oversight is, you know, one of the only ways in which the administrative state is democratically accountable.
2: But this gets to another problem with the administrative state, which is Chevron, that not only are you moving the legislative function over to the executive branch, but then when there is disagreement over even what that should mean... We then put even another thumb. So now we have like a thumb and a finger, at least, on the scale, because Chevron is to defer, Chevron deference is to defer to the administrative agency's own interpretation of their regulation. We've talked a lot of, well, we used to talk a lot about Chevron, is yeah. the truth. Yeah. And then we've called it zombie precedent, and that while it hasn't been overruled, it's sort of wandering out there, but nobody seems to care anymore <laughs> because it's lacking teeth and perhaps...
3: It's in the. Uh, it's extensions. still. It's still in the dangerous zombie f- uh, phase where it's still it's mobile and moaning around the countryside and able to bite. Unlike say lemon before it was finally ultimately torpedoed, where lemon was in the inert zombie phase, <laughs> just laying there, right, rotted away. Uh, but I think of Chevron as being chipped away so much that. I'm not sure how much of original Chevron is left.
2: As a judge, how do you think of Chevron to the extent you can tell us thoughts?
1: Sure. Um, well, you know, over half of my docket is administrative law cases. <laughs> so um, I think, you know, maybe Chevron is like a zombie that some judges can see it and some judges no longer see it. Right. Uh-huh. Maybe. I don't know. I don't. Poltergeist.
3: Oh Yeah, a poltergeist precedent. We've just coined a new term. I like that. <laughs>
1: um. I don't cite Chevron in very many opinions. I mean, I think, look, most regulatory challenges, we can look at a statute and we have to determine whether that action is within the statute. And so to me, most of these are just statutory questions. And so I don't often get to what people call Chevron step two, you know, is the agency acted reasonably within this authority? Um, You know, I think there's a lot of work to be done just to figure out whether the agency has acted within its statutory grant altogether. And I have to be honest, I have, um, I mean, Chevron has a lot of problems because, you know, judges should not be deferring legal interpretation, legal interpretation Mm -hmm. to agencies. But, you know, the real problem is non-delegation. I mean, Chevron is a natural consequence in a way of having open-ended delegation. So like, if we're going to let agencies regulate under some open-ended standard, you know, you can't expect judges to come along and like, choose a different regulation under an open-ended standard. So the problem is really the open-ended standard. I think it is not necessarily Chevron on its own.
0: Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky.
2: Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Can we do a couple seconds on non-delegation and major questions doctrine? Sure. So, as I've explained this on the podcast, which... Um, I will note that nobody on the Supreme Court has actually explained it this way, so take it for what it's worth. <laughs> non-delegation is, can Congress delegate? Major questions doctrine is, did they delegate? Mm-hmm. Uh, as a, an originalist, you're self-described originalist. Um,
1: it's very controversial.
2: <laughs> <laughs> How are we supposed to think about non-delegation doctrine and major questions doctrine in the
1: modern era? They're sort of coming back, right? Yeah, I hope so. They're there. They always have been there. They've always been there. They've always been there. <laughs> um, so one of the things interesting, all of the Supreme Court's non-delegation cases, every one of them says categorically Congress cannot delegate its legislative power. hmm yeah, but they do. So like I'm but, but so, but so but like they recognize that that it is forbidden. Right. And then it's a question of what do we recognize as a delegation. But they all like all of the cases agree that they can't delegate. So so what's happening in the major questions doctrine, I I don't know if I would say it's like, did they delegate? Because I think the Supreme Court's formal view is they can never delegate. So um I I think the major questions, doctrine is sort of like an under-inclusive part of non-delegation, right? It's, you know, it's it's something. It's making sure that Congress, like, at least is being forced to decide the most important questions. Um, You know, you think about the Clean Air Act, right? I don't know. There's been, there's not been, I think... Uh, serious amendments to the Clean Air Act since 1992. When you think about all the 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 science and debates about the science for climate change, and you know there's and you know EPA goes back and forth on how to regulate greenhouse gases, but we don't have any directive from Congress about this really important political issue. And that seems like a major question of a sort.
2: And as I've said before, if you care about climate change, we're in the worst timeline because you're ping ponging back and forth between administrations within the EPA. Uh, Obama created the Clean Power Plan rule. Trump rescinds it. Biden has his own thing that's different from Obama's or Trump's. You can't do climate change in four-year increments. So no matter which side of the debate you're on, you still want Congress to actually have to solve this from the hurly-burly legislative compromise. Even if you don't get everything you want, it will still be better than this, I think.
3: You know, I wrote a piece in The Atlantic several months ago that lots of people got mad at. Imagine that. Hard. I, I don't even know. I, I I can't. That
2: narrows it down not at all.
3: <laughs> I'm so sorry. But basically, my point was that, you know, what the Supreme Court was doing and has been doing is essentially saying step by step, uh, this is not the president's job. This is the, the whether it's major questions and you're talking about OSHA or you're talking about EPA, whether you're going to talk about um, the student loan uh, case coming up. A big part of the question is, uh, is this within the scope of what Congress is permitting the president to do or within the scope of what's within the power of the, uh, of the executive? And part of the pushback that you get isn't, isn't constitutional at all. It's not sort of centered in the Constitution at all. It's sort of centered in this notion of you're playing with fire because we all know Congress won't do its job. And so a lot of the pushback comes from this notion, not that what you describe as the legislative authority of Congress, but from the notion that we just have to recognize the world that we live in. And if you're going to remove this authority from the president, you're going to remove it from, for lack of a better term, from the political, from the prospects of a political decision, that this is going to be, we're going to have major problems that just founder, nothing is done. And that, I, I found that is a lot of the volcanic rage I received more from one side of the spectrum than the other to essentially say, you're dooming us because Congress is so is so dysfunctional.
2: And that inaction favors conservatives. Conservatives don't mind inaction as much
1: as
3: Right, and right. Right. Student. Right. right. Although that's less it's not
1: clear that inaction now favors conservatives. Yeah. Given where we are.
3: Yes. That's a very that's a very true statement. Yeah. So, you know, but from a judge's standpoint, how much are you is it? Is it something that is supposed to enter your mind that I'm handing the ball to Congress and I know they're going to fumble
1: so have maybe what some might think of as a simplistic view of the judge's role, right? My jo- job is to say what the law is. And then the consequences and the chips kind of fall where they may. Um, a question of how our political branches are going to address complex problems is not something for me to sort out as a judge in these individual cases. So, So, I mean, it's a real concern what happens if you have yeah. a robust non-delegation principle. What kind of regulatory state will we have? Those are real political questions. Yep. They're questions of political science. They're important. But I don't know that they factor into judicial decision making. You know, I have to look at the Constitution. I have to look at the laws and figure out what they mean. I also think some of the, um, I will just say, you know, putting on my law professor hat from some time ago, I, you know, I think the concerns are a little overblown. I, I mean, there are lots of uh, solutions to if there is a more robust non-delegation doctrine, you know, Congress will have to sort of figure out what it's doing. And Congress can staff up. They can have more specific legislation. They right. can hire more people. They control the purse strings, as you mentioned, right? So there are, um, there are a lot of ways to fix the problem. Um, and I don't know that judges need to be thinking about whether there's political will to follow the Constitution.
3: I've noticed in, just in the last four to five years, when you do hit one of those walls that is nobody but Congress can do X. We've seen Congress actually do things, mm-hmm. you know, everything from Ukraine aid. The president can't conjure $100 billion up for Ukraine aid. That has to come through Congress. The COVID financial relief, like the PPP program, the president could never conjure that up. Congress stepped up. Um, there are many circumstances where, when only Congress can do something, Congress finally says, well, I mean, I guess we'll do our job. And it, it strikes me as kind of uh, defeatist thinking to say, if we expand the, the sphere of the things that only Congress can do to restore it more to its constitutional role, that they're just gonna not do it at all.
2: I, it's I, blaming the wrong branch. Mm-hmm. I mean, we had this conversation here at the conference that many people blamed Congress for inaction because they're the ones not fixing the problem. But to me, I think if you look historically, um, (laughs) A, I think the president is largely to blame. Um, You know, I talked about Obama's pen and phone quote. You know, the beginning of that quote is actually, uh, I'll act with Congress where I can, but where they're deadlocked, I'll do it myself. That killed all no compromise on necessary on DACA because mm-hmm. Congress is like, wait a second. So if we don't do anything, you'll just do it for us. That sounds awesome. We saw it again on bump stocks. There were bills in both houses. Um, and then, you know, but Republicans didn't want to take the vote because frankly, it would have been politically harmful. Many of them would have been primaried for passing a gun regulation, restricting bump stocks. So then Trump was like, well, I don't want my guys taking a hard vote I'll just take care of it. And even though everyone knew that the ATF regulation had legal infirmities, I'll put it, it killed all possibility of a bump stock ban in Congress because why would Republicans ever then have the political risk? So I think there's historical evidence to blame the presidency that they're reacting very much within their Congress is acting within their incentives rationally to a strong administrative state and executive branch. And I think a little bit Uh, that the courts, the Warren court and the increase of judicial power over the last 70 years has also changed Congress's incentives to some extent when the courts are willing to find rights and fix problems. Again, Congress is like, oh, well, that's that's just great. Well, then I think we're good here and I'll go home on Thursdays. (laughs) I, I, I agree with you that it's not a judge's job to worry about that. But I think the pushback from the left that I am most Persuaded by, <laughs> is okay. Then stop striking down what Congress does all the time too. <laughs> if you want, if if your answer is Congress needs to do more, the administrative state is doing too much. As a conservative judicial uh, person, then you shouldn't be pleased when the courts then strike down an act of Congress for lack of specificity. Or you know, I'm thinking here about Obamacare and some of the challenges to that. Um, and I want to talk about Mazar's a little, even though that's not quite the same. It's adjacent. So what do you say to that institutionalist criticism? Not
1: sure the solution to a more robust Congress is for courts to uphold unconstitutional laws. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, so I mean that. I don't think you mean that either. I know. Yeah. (laughs) So I think that is a tough sell. But, you know, I do think it's one of the features of some of the distortions of the administrative state is that it creates additional distortions, right? Mm -hmm. You have delegation, and then that distorts what courts are doing. It distorts with the executive branch. It, you know, delegation also unravels the unitary executive, right? It's very hard to have a unitary plan of execution when you're overseeing the current administrative state. And, you know, we're not even talking about independent agencies, which is another whole topic. But um, so, so I think- Which I are the creation speech- of Congress, funny enough.
2: Right? Yeah. Like Congress creates an independent agency that is outside the legislative branch- But which branch is it in?
1: Well, it's definitely all of those agencies are executive branch agencies. There's no question in my mind. Um, I I don't think that we can. I think each branch has to do its job robustly, right? It's not that like some branch has to pull back. I think if every branch exercises its powers and not more than its powers and not less than its powers, then we have the type of checks and balances that our Constitution created. So you're going to be robust and Congress needs to hit the weights. Congress I definitely that's needs right. to get the way. I don't yeah. think the solution to Congress being
2: and weak is the president should stop doing steroids. <laughs> well, maybe illegal
1: steroids. I like that. Yeah,
3: yeah. Illegal but you yeah, know, the courts
1: have been pretty good about um, trimming back on executive overreach. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd not love to every, see more. Well, not in every instance, but but you know, there have there was a lot of judicial checking of um, President Bush and President Obama and President Trump, and we, you know, I mean, it's not. You know, it may not be as much as one would like or in every case, but, you know, I do think the courts have been a check on presidents exceeding their powers. You
3: know, and this is much more of sort of a political, cultural thought than a, a legal and jurisprudential thought, but it feels to me, and, and we it's always tough to know in the moment, it feels to me that the congressional valley, in other words, the lowest point of congressional responsibility in action has been reached, and we've started to see a bit of a revival. So electoral count act reform, um, respect for Marriage Act. Um, very, there have been multiple there have been multiple statutes that have been passed with filibuster-proof majorities through the Senate when as recently as three years ago, the thought was a filibuster-proof majority is not reachable in, in the current uh, politi- state of political polarization. So, I don't know. It's one of those things where is that an actual change in the wind or just a momentary gust in a different direction? But I do wonder if there has been a bit of a change in the wind where we've seen some, we've seen the filibuster proof majorities that we didn't think that we would see uh, as a result of some folks just stepping forward and saying, if not us, who? You know, (laughs) if not now, when?
1: I do think an important part of this that is sometimes lost is there is a kind of a sense that it doesn't really matter if Congress takes an action or an agency takes an action. And I do think it's important to talk about why Congress matters, right? right? Why does Congress have to do this? Why not just the EPA Mm -hmm. or the, you know, NLRB or something like that? Why does it matter? And I think there are lots of reasons it matters, you know, for all the things we've been talking about in terms of representation and deliberation and all the things that only happen in Congress and not in the agencies. But I think because um, the regulatory state is so robust, it's almost as though legislation and regulations are interchangeable. Right. They're not interchangeable. And they're, they have very different um, sources of accountability and development and deliberation. And I think we've lost sight of that a little bit. So I think even just talking about why Congress matters not just for some yeah. formal reason, right. but for like a really important constitutional democracy reason um, is is important. This is where I blame
2: us, media, people who cover this sort right. of stuff, because, uh, again, I think the bump stocks is such a good example because it has all the pieces that you need. It has Congress trying to act, never mind, this on shaky legal ground now. And I assure you, I think this will go to the Supreme Court, the Fifth Circuit case, but... Um, but I assure you, if the Supreme Court strikes down the bump stock act, the headline the bump is stock ban." Sorry, the bump yeah. stock ban. That's exactly the point. I suppose. <laughs> if the Supreme Court strikes down the bump stock ban, the headline will read: "Conservative Court Strikes Down Gun Regulation." Mm-hmm. Instead of Congress, you effed this up. Right. <laughs> we all know Congress had the authority to do this. There were questions, at least in the Trump administration. And again, I was at DOJ at the time. So this I, I picked that example because it is a self-own. Mm-hmm. Um, there were plenty of questions at the time that thought that a president might not be able to do this. Um, and then the courts do what they're supposed to do, which is call the balls and strike, let's say. But then they get the blame, which drags, I think, a, the other branch down as well. And we're seeing that in just polling about the role of the courts and trust in the Supreme Court as an institution that's, I think, part of the delegation uh, unintended consequences as well is is the courts getting dragged into fights that otherwise should have been a legislative fight. And the permanence of it, whether it's the EPA or bump stocks or anything else, like it's just not permanent when the administrative state does it the way that when Congress does it, it's not permanent. Congress could repeal it.
1: But it is. It's much. a lot
3: more concrete. Well, then
1: the agencies are working out the details, which is their job. But the, the fundamental policy choice is hard to change.
3: even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
2: Can we talk Mazar's? Sure. So this is uh, whether it became a Supreme Court case. Um, This was about Congress subpoenaing the president, Trump's tax records. And this went through the DC circuit first they uh in a majority up in a panel majority upheld congress's subpoena two to one you're the one (laughs) and i want to talk a little bit about your (laughs) dissent the supreme court then has an interesting take on it and i'm always i love talking to circuit judges about when the supreme court like reverses them in this case like you're not it wasn't even a reversal. It was just sort of a well. They own. did
1: vacate. They did vacate the, ma- the majority opinion. So, so it's
2: seven two. It's sent back down to revisit with new factors written by the chief. Two dissents: Alito and Thomas. And boy, that Thomas dissent sure looked familiar <laughs> <laughs> to perhaps one of his former clerks channeling him um, when she was on the DC Circuit in dissent. So I don't know. I was just so curious to hear about the Mazars saga.
1: Well, I don't know. I mean, I spent a lot of time on that dissent. Yeah. It was a, it was a really hard history, question. You did a lot of originalism. I always thought from the beginning it was a really hard case, and I read all of the relevant precedents that the parties had cited and in, in my view the precedents didn't resolve the issue before us. And it seemed to me that there were no cases talking about the situation we had there, which is the house was seeking these tax returns from the president's accountants to in order to investigate criminal wrongdoing, so things that could be, in theory, impeachable offenses. Did he violate the Emoluments Clause? Did he violate ethics laws, et cetera? So they were very candid that they were seeking evidence of wrongdoing, and so I worked with my clerks. We went back, and we looked at all of the, you know, we looked at founding era materials about the understanding between the legislative power, power of investigation, the impeachment power. And what became clear was not only at the founding, but kind of all the way through to the present, there was a really um, consistent understanding that, that if Congress wanted to seek evidence of wrongdoing, they had to do it through impeachment. They could not do it through their ordinary legislative investigative powers.
2: Can I ask a question real quick? Yeah. What if, though, through their normal legislative powers, mm-hmm. they found yeah. evidence of wrongdoing? So the amazing, there are great
1: examples of this Mm -hmm. where they're doing some ordinary oversight, and then it starts to seem, you know, often not for the president, but even just for a senior impeachable official, um, they uncover some wrongdoing, and then there are all these debates that say, oh, well, before we go any further, we have to decide whether we're going to bring an impeachment proceeding, Mm. and this happens time and time again. So they're, you know, they're, they're they're researching some episode, like why did this thing go wrong, but then if it seems that like a impeachable official could be impeached. You know, this is like some kind of criminal act or some high crime or misdemeanor. They move to impeachment. Mm. So and they really so, were
2: two separate powers, and you had to decide which lever you
1: were working on. That's right. And because there's so much accountability to impeachment, right, which is different. And so my view, and the history here, the history is not always so clear. I mean, this was right. really clear. And and it was the it was the the understanding all the way through to as recently as the Clinton impeachment. When if you read the House Judiciary reports, they talk about this history and they agree with my understanding of the history. Mm-hmm. Um, so it seemed quite clear that you know maybe a committee could seek the president's tax returns um, for criminal purposes, but they had to do through through impeachment. And um, there was an impeachment investigation pending at that time, so it wasn't as though there was not an avenue to seek this information through that.
3: And so what's your response to the, uh, the question of, well, wait a minute, uh, Judge, isn't this sort of potato, potato, um, whether, it's, whether we're saying it's for a legislative purpose or versus impeachment purpose, why does it matter um, which formulation we're using? We have the authority, we have the authority to get this information.
1: I think it actually matters a lot because the the to the extent Congress has some power of investigation, it is it is solely connected to their legislative power. They only have the ability to investigate on subjects that legislation could be had. That's mm-hmm. sort of the phrase that's used. So okay, so that is that is that power um, that has been recognized um, by the Supreme Court. It's a very and that they do it on the way to making legislation right. fine. But the impeachment power is a very different kind of power, right? The House sits as, you know, a grand inquest. It is a kind of judicial power, right? It's talked about that way at the founding, right? The impeachment removal power are judicial powers. They're not legislative powers. They come with a very different kind of accountability, right? If you're going to bring an impeachment action against the President of the United States, there is political accountability for that in a way that if you're in a committee just holding some oversight hearing, you don't have that same accountability, mm-hmm. And I think the Constitution wanted that level of accountability if Congress was going to work to impeach and remove high-ranking officials. Um, I think this also kind of goes to another um, important principle, that the greater power in constitutional law rarely includes the lesser. Mm. You know, the great power of impeachment doesn't allow you to then seek the same thing in a different way. It's a great power because it comes with certain forms um of accountability that go with that great power. And that great power doesn't just sort of follow on include the lesser power. I think most I mean there maybe there's some counter example but I think it's very rare that a greater power includes the lesser power in our constitutional system of government. You know
3: this really in an interesting way Sarah connects with the conversation we just had with the authors of mine Okay, we,
1: we talked to the
2: law professors who wrote a book about property rights, but like property rights in our everyday. Can you recline your seat on the airplane? And like the scrum to get on the airplane in the first place, and your place in that line. Yeah, like mine! Exclamation point is the name of the book.
3: Yes, who who owns the right to raise and lower the window on the window shade? We spent a lot shade. of time
1: on airplanes. To be we honest.
3: did. We did. That that tells you how much time we spend on airplanes. But
1: that is a great question. I often do wonder that. I'm like, yeah. yeah who does control That's,
3: that? I've always viewed it because I always take the window seat, but I look at it as a collective right.
2: You do, so communist. if, if it's any, my, I also take the window seat, and it is mine.
3: <laughs> oh no, no! If any person wants it raised, nope. I raise. What? Yeah.
2: What? What if there's a split? You have three people there. One wants it raised. Two want it down. Is it majority?
3: Well, then once there's a split, then I'm the deciding justice oh of the Supreme Court. Okay. So the one, the one thing I am is the you know I'm the Kennedy. I'm the Justice Kennedy of the, of the window shade, but. We're a little far afield, but I had a point to make, which was one thing that we talked about when we were talking about mine wasn't, was the important, not the importance not just of the outcome, but of the process. How do you get to the outcome often matters more than the actual outcome if there's consensus about the how. And it feels like this is an underappreciated element of American civics is that the how matters a lot. Uh, to the sustaining of the American experiment. It's not just the what. And this goes back to what you were saying, Sarah, about how the media often tends to just cover the what. Uh, So if they're writing about your dissent, Judge Rao dissents from allowing Congress to have the material, you know, these investigatory materials. Well, no, it's a how question. Mm -hmm. And it strikes me that we have a real task of civic education to describe the importance of the how, not just the what.
1: I think that's a great point, David. I I also think that the American people are up for understanding the nuances of these things. I do think a lot of coverage of courts is a little bit watered down, but I think ordinary Americans can understand the Constitution and why its structures and procedures are important. And and I saw this a little bit when I worked in the government because I spoke to a lot of ordinary Americans about how the administrative state was affecting them, whether they were a paper mill worker or, you know, somebody who lost their job in mining or something like this. And and it was amazing to me how so many of these ordinary Americans had a really sophisticated understanding of how the government was impacting them, what had gone wrong, Um, I remember talking to a group of Missouri farmers and someone asked me about the non-delegation doctrine. And wasn't that, in fact, kind of at the root of many of their problems? Mm-hmm. And I thought that was pretty great that a farmer from <laughs> Missouri was asking about the non-delegation doctrine. I need to doctrine.
3: meet that farmer.
1: Right. And yes. so I just, you know, I think that civic education needs to be more robust, but I think also, you know, journalists and other people who interact with the public have an obligation to... You know, convey more detailed information so people can understand these things. And
3: we can't be afraid of being told we're against gun regulation because you're against the way in which a bump stock ban was promulgated.
1: I think people can understand that. Absolutely. It's not, it's not as though that is beyond people's. Comprehension. It is not at
3: all beyond, yes.
1: yes. All
2: right, I have an important question. Which feels better to be upheld by the Supreme Court when you're in the majority, or for the majority opinion to be vacated by the Supreme Court when you're in dissent?
1: <laughs> Both <laughs> has happened. Yes. Um, exactly. You know? Yes. Yeah, so um, I, I don't know. Um, never know what they're going to do down the street from our courthouse. <laughs> yes. you, know, you just hope for the best, right? Um, this isn't
2: like a risk aversion thing. Like people would no. prefer not to lose money than to win money, you know?
1: I have not been reversed by the Supreme Court. Oh, so. wow. Mm. You know, it could, I'm sure it will happen right. one day, but it has not happened yet. So, <laughs>
2: Okay. Last question, I think, on clerkships. Okay. What do you look for in a clerk? <laughs> ah.
3: Again, we have law student listeners who uh-huh. just like all of a sudden it's the old E.F. Hutton commercials you know, where it's E.F. Like e. Hutton says and everyone leans in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> judge Rao says and a bunch uh, of people leaned in.
1: Well, so I, I guess I will say first that the law clerks are one of the best parts of the job of being a judge. I really... Fortunate to have amazing law clerks, and uh, really, I got
2: to you, by the way. I mean, I knew you were coming here, no, but right. I reached out through one of your former law clerks. Yeah,
1: that's right. And he sent this along, and he and I noted. I'm like, I don't really listen to podcasts very much, <laughs> but my current law clerks all suggest that everyone listens to this podcast. So I, you know, I, I felt we're like I leave. <laughs> yes. That's right, yes. exactly. Um, so what do I look for in a law clerk? I You know they have to be academically very excellent because it turns out that academic excellence translates into being a good law clerk. The skills of being a good student and a law clerk are similar,
2: necessary but not sufficient. That gets you into the pool.
1: I am also looking for people who want to do interesting things with their law degree and um, their clerkship. I mean, you know, I so I'm interested in hiring people who have a. Range of different interests. Some of my clerks want to be in government. Some of them want to be academics. You know, I'm sure some will go and just be appellate partners at law firms, and that's fine too. Um, But I am interested, you know, in people who have, you know, the right kind of ambition to do something interesting and important, um, make a difference in the world, and whatever way they're kind of best suited to make a difference. I'm looking for people like that. Um, I want to find people I enjoy spending time with. I spend a lot of time with my law clerks. there's some really smart kids who are sociopaths, <laughs> and not um, interested in hiring sociopaths. Yes. So Tough um, but fair. I do, Tough I but do fair. try to screen yeah. for that. Um, no sociopaths. Um, also, you know, I'm looking for kids who are nice kids, right, who have integrity and um, they're good people. And when you talk to their references, they not only say how amazingly brilliant they are, but that they are also decent and good people who are liked by their peers, who are um, you know able to get along both with their peers and their professors, you know people who are you know just good people and that is also really important because I know my clerks will be respectful to me, but I want to make sure they are going to be respectful with each other with other people in the building that when they go out into the world, they will be good and decent people. Um, you know I'm not saying I can control for all of this, but but this is what I'm looking for so
3: so that reminds me well one of one of two pieces of advice that my uncle gave me that I have have stayed with me my entire career about uh, when I was just in law school. His well, first piece of advice, which is not w- what you talked about, was don't get too good at something you don't like or you'll end up doing it the rest of your life, huh, which I thought was-
1: Smart advice. Smart, smart advice. advice. My English teacher told me the same thing. It is great advice. It's
3: tremendous advice. It,
1: it's, it is for people who can do many things, mm-hmm. It is one of the best pieces of advice I ever received Yes, as well.
3: So that's great advice. And then the other one was, and this is what directly relevant to you, what you said, and he was coming from a professional, you know, a corporate professional background, not legal, but he said, David, you're going to spend more waking hours with the people in your law firm than your spouse. So you better like them. And I thought, Huh because at that point i was deciding between two firms one of which seemed to offer some slightly better opportunities and the other one i just loved the people like i just loved hanging out with them the thought of practicing law with them made me happy and they, but they didn't have quite the same menu of practice options and then when he said that i was like oh got it and i went the direction of with the people i connected with and i liked and it was a trim, it was a great decision because you're going to thrive in that environment Uh, Where you're just grit, as opposed to when you're just gritting your teeth and getting through because of a career advantage or something Mm -hmm. uh, like that.
2: Similarly, my dad always told me you could tell the most about a person. So in in Texas, um, there's a parking attendant, like there's a gate. You sort Mm -hmm. of see the parking guy. He said by how people treat the parking attendant that that was, like, the number one thing for law clerks or anything else. Huh. But, like, are they, yeah. are they, rude? that's, like, obviously a deal breaker. Mm-hmm. And when I was at the department. But a lot of
1: people just ignore. Ignore. Uh-huh. Ignore the people who are kind They're of just not peripheral. There. They're not there. They're yeah, invisible. Yeah. And that's not a great quality either.
2: I was having trouble getting along with my, not having trouble. I just wasn't connecting with my assistant at the Department of Justice. He was clearly a fine kid, whatever. Um but I was like, eh, I don't know. I may move someone else into this job. And, uh, and I came in one day, um, and he was already there, of course, which is good. But at the Department of Justice, they hire to do the janitorial staff. Um, in this case, at least, they had hired an organization that specifically hires people with disabilities. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's not unusual. But um, and he was in a full I can't even tell you how far into this conversation they must have been at the point I heard it. This was not like, hey, how you doing? Or like even knowing his name, like they were in the depths of a long conversation, um, you know, about sports and about like the specific shot and mm-hmm. like all of this stuff. And clearly it had been a conversation going on for weeks at that point. And it totally changed my relationship with this assistant um we've become very close because it changed my perspective on
3: who he was who he was his kindness his
2: character Mm -hmm. because beyond being smart i guess i don't care it's necessary but not sufficient but that character means that someone i should invest everything i've got in because someone with that character and that intelligence Mm -hmm. can do anything
1: Exactly. It's, um, it's really a combination. You know, intelligence is not enough. It's really, it is necessary, but, but there's so many other human qualities and that are important.
3: That will bring us full circle because we're almost back to, we're almost at our normal length of a podcast because back to Justice Thomas, because it reminds me of what Justice Sotomayor said about him, that of the justices, not to say that other justices aren't good at this, but of the justices, he knows people. He connects with people. He talks to people. I thought that was an incredibly, we brought it up a few times, an incredibly touching uh, thing that Justice Sotomayor said about her colleague, that he was somebody who knew everyone and was known to understand and, and care about everyone within that the Supreme Court family.
1: It was something I, I mean, I learned so many things from Justice Thomas, but that was I had never worked for someone who had that type of approach to everyone in the building. He knew, you know, if the person who's bringing books down from the library, their mother is having an operation and he knows, you know, like about the kids of the person working in the cafeteria. I mean, it's, it was so genuine and real and just the way that he connected, deliberately connected with everyone around him with kindness um and graciousness is a tremendous model i think for all of us
2: i think there's a sense that that's supposed to come naturally to people that you're either that type of person or you're right. not and i i think if um there's one thought to leave from this podcast it's that no
1: i think they're sociopaths but like beyond that <laughs> no no you can learn you to can be this way
2: learn to care that's about right. people and Learn to right. cultivate that or in just yourself.
1: you know just to think about that this makes a difference to people um yeah, and it will make a difference to you too to have a In connection. Getting a clerkship with yeah.
3: <laughs> Exactly.
2: Thank you so much for joining us today. Well, you're welcome. And thank you for um, having me. What a treat it's been to yes. hear you at the National Constitution Center conference here, and um, and we'll be talking about many more of your opinions to come, whether you're listening or not.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Sarah, and David. It's really great to be with you.